Hello, and thank you for joining us for today's episode on aiding Afghanistan in the aftermath of the United States military withdrawal. My name is Alec Raven, and I am your host for this episode of the Oxford Policy Pod. In August 2021, the United States withdrew its military forces from Afghanistan after being involved in the country for around two decades. Taliban forces moved very quickly after the U.S. withdrawal, and military successes led to a Taliban takeover of most of Afghanistan. The fall of the country led to a surge in refugees fleeing the country. Many Afghan refugees faced severe difficulties and receiving visas to come to the United States and to other countries. Dozens of civilians and 13 U.S. soldiers were also killed in a devastating terrorist attack outside the Kabul airport while trying to evacuate the country. Taliban control in Afghanistan has now led to a host of pressing humanitarian concerns as policymakers grapple with a new Taliban government. In this episode, we will be exploring the best approaches to supporting the people of Afghanistan, including its economic development and supporting human rights and refugee policy. We are joined by two amazing guests who have a deep background on Afghanistan and humanitarian efforts supporting the country. Our first guest is Nahid Sarabi, the former Deputy Minister of Policy for Afghanistan's Ministry of Finance. And our second is Lini Tori Jean, who is the Afghanistan Program Coordinator at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. Our hope is to leave listeners with a deeper background on the current political crisis in Afghanistan and outline a roadmap for what policymakers can do to support the people of Afghanistan moving forward. Our first guest is Nahid Sarabi, the former Deputy Minister for Policy in Afghanistan's Ministry of Finance. Previously, she assisted in developing the Afghanistan National Peace and Development Framework and served as the director of the Afghan National Development Strategy. She's also held the position of Commissioner for the International Commission on Inclusive Peace at Principles for Peace Initiative. She also, before coming to the United States, served as the Assistant Resident Representative for the United Nations Development Program. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ms. Sarabi. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And so my first question is, you've been extensively involved with projects supporting the development in Afghanistan. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners some of the work you were doing in the former Afghan government and what were some key challenges you faced? Thank you. Um, I have been involved in the development sector for the past 10 years, um, mainly in the government. I was um, the director of Afghanistan National Development Strategy. That was the first development strategy Afghanistan developed after um, 2001, uh, as we call it, the new era, um, after the first uh, regime of the Taliban collapse. And then later on in 2000, uh, from 2017 till 2020, I was deputy minister of policy in the Ministry of Finance. So my work mainly included overseeing the coordination of development frameworks and strategies in Afghanistan um, that would also be implemented through the what we call the national priority programs. So national priority programs but are, are all development programs of the country through which every sector implemented their uh, plans. It um, included all sectors from agriculture to human capital to infrastructure development to public man finance management um, to health um, to um, to mining sector um, that that Afghanistan felt that needed to be developed. Um, a part of my job was also coordinate international communities um, work in um, uh, coordination with the government of Afghanistan. 
um, we had yearly or even quarterly coordination meetings with donor agencies that were supporting development efforts in Afghanistan um, through aid. Um, so you talked about challenges. Um, the, the first challenge, as I recall, and it has been one of the reasons um, of why certain things didn't work, was the structure of aid itself. Uh, first of all, at, at one point, with so much of aid coming to Afghanistan, we didn't have a good accountability mechanism or ownership of the government to structure or to know what aid, how much aid, and where it was spent. Um, so um, instead of having full-fledged programs and strategies for the government um, to uh, manage development, it was rather uh, a number of projects implemented by different donor agencies. Um, I, I always referred it to um, a Christmas tree which, where everybody wanted to put their own ornament on a tree and, and start doing their own favorite, um, favorite sectors. Um, the other big um, challenge for government, and especially for me and my colleagues back in the Ministry of Finance, that we didn't have enough data of, of aid and what was spent and how much was spent in the country. We had a system through which donors would register their aid um, contributions to Afghanistan, but till the very last date, when the government collapsed, we were just unable to record whatever was spent and dispersed in Afghanistan. Um, third, as a country that was very much aid-dependent, we had 75% of our um, expenditure uh, consisted of aid, unfortunately, um, although there were improvements in revenue management and revenue generation. Um, we, as a government, did not have predictable amounts of aid. It would be from conference to conference that the Afghan government would see how much aid it would get. Otherwise, um, we just had to plan um, something without knowing what the exact amount would be. So aid pre predictability was a major, major issue. Uh, talking, I'm just talking about broad, broad issues here. And the last thing I want to point out were the conditionalities um, put um, on, on, um, on the government of Afghanistan in different forms. Again, different donors putting different conditionalities, which um, resulted in small, thick mark activities rather than bringing very... Um, a conducive environment of reforms or um, sustainable reforms that would actually enable institutions to carry forward development programs. And it was rather small activities, as I said, here and there. And there were too many of those conditions um, for the government of Afghanistan. But also, just to be self-critical on the government side, we did have um, challenges in the government. Um, there wasn't a well-coordinated, um, 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 although we had development strategies, but it was very hard for everyone to get around the development strategies and buy into it. Um, um, ministries did not have, or um, they had, they wanted their own plans rather than a coherent way where government would pick up their priorities um, and get funding or even spend their revenues on um, corruption was also an, um, a very big issue in the government where much of the resources were uh, wasted 
and one of the reasons why we did not have much um, aid spent on budget. When I say on budget spending, it means part of the aid money that goes through the government channel instead of um, through NGOs or um, aid agencies spending themselves rather than giving it to the government of Afghanistan. So there was a lot of resistance of giving that aid money to the government because of the corruption issue. Um, and although the government made efforts, but that was something that um, the aid agencies uh, insisted um, they they couldn't um, uh, trust or uh, trust as much as uh, was was sufficient to give that money or channel it through the um, government. Those are all very, very helpful answers. And I know it's a very complex system when talking about 75% being aid and all the conditionalities and um, discussions and different views of where the aid goes. And so I guess looking at that big tree of all these you know, different obstacles, how do you go about improving the aid system? How do you go about improving Afghanistan's financing? What, what do you think are some lessons that we can learn in the development world about improving uh, countries that we've learned from Afghanistan? And how do you think we can overcome some of these obstacles that you mentioned? That's um, an amazing question. And I don't think there are specific, um, one answer fits all. I think each country has, that's that's my belief at least, from my experience working in, in the sector in Afghanistan. Um, each country, they, they have to um, analyze their situation in a better way and come up with solutions. But there are a few uh, generic and um, um, I think um, wholesome ideas or suggestions that I wanted to make. First of all, um, aid does not bring growth and overall development in any country in its entirety. If you think aid can solve all the problems, that's a wrong way of looking at it. But aid can bring the initial investment for the countries to then become self-reliant. Self-sufficiency is the only way to go. And that's what we insisted in the last couple of years in Afghanistan, that we had too many challenges to even look into self-sufficiency um, idea. Um, second, um, um, Ownership, government ownership is key in any debate um, with the, uh, on aid. If you do not put a mechanism that governments know how much aid, where and how is it spent, it, it, will, not, um, it will not make the impact that it's supposed to do. So um, at the end of the day, even if you call for accountability, if government does not take the responsibility, the ownership, no one else would do. So my insistence is a lot on the structures within the government and that they also be accountable. Um, third, it's investment on key institutions that can bring revenue generation and um, make sure that those um, that, that revenue and all the resources are spent in an accountable and transparent manner and value for money. You spent on projects that bring you um, uh, they bring you value out of money. And I think you've seen that with uh, much of the development uh, countries in the last um, couple of months. Everyone is def defaulting on the debt and there's a debt crisis um, in, in, in many of these countries. 
um, and they're asking for bailouts. So you do not wa also want to end up in a situation where um, the um, you you uh, default on on the um, on the loans that you have taken. Um, the issue of how you spend the revenues and on what projects do you spend. Um, fourth, um, there has to be accountability towards the people, the people that the aid is going to be served, not the other way around. I think that is also another reason or um, another issues that we really um, defaulted in Afghanistan, that the accountability was much more towards the donors rather than the people of Afghanistan. Um, because they were the ones who were um, paying and um, there were many conferences and all the conditions that we were talking about um, rather than going to the countryside, going to the provinces in Afghanistan and, and reporting to the people and telling them what, what uh, the government has actually done and what it's planning to do. That all makes sense. And you talked about the importance of investing in key institutions for revenue generation. And I was wondering if you'd be able to reflect on what you see as some of those key institutions for revenue generation, especially in a developing country like Afghanistan. What are some crucial industries or in institutions that really need that initial support in order to produce sustainable revenue? The very first important institution of course, your finance, your public finance management system, revenue generation, um, and customs and revenue departments. Um, if you do not have your basics um, clear and your basics um, um, institutionalized, you can't expect other agencies to um, um, to reflect and uh, follow you. Um, so, if you have a good budget. You have a good public expenditure and public finance management system. Um, that there is transparency in in, in your um, checks and balances. That's when you when you can um, actually manage every other field or every other sector in the country. For example, in Afghanistan, it was always Ministry of Finance. There were a lot of efforts in um, reforming the public finance management, but there were also Money challenges, for example, we had Parliament, which was helpful, but sometimes quite unhelpful in how the budget was made, how projects were selected um, on a yearly basis, and how we got information on aid. Um, and, um, and, and even uh, like at the, at the end of the year, how would you um, present your financial statement. So all the accountability and transparency in a package and through the public, a good public finance management system. Um, the second on, in, in, in Afghanistan, we had customs and revenue as part of Ministry of Finance. So in other developing nations, it, it um, might be different. So that, that part, if you want um, your revenues to raise um, and you want more customs um, revenue, um, you have to have a transparent system there. Your systems need to be um, intact. Um, other sectors, um, for example, mining. Um, Afghanistan has huge potential of extractives, but um, that would, it's also a very complicated sector. We have seen it in other developing countries where it has, um, um, it has turned into a curse for that country. So it's really important for that sector to be managed well. Uh, also, another issue that 
went wrong for Afghanistan, uh, we were highly dependent on agriculture, but um, we did not have that sector reformed well, and not much emphasis was was paid on that sector um, to to make Afghanistan at least even self-sufficient in terms of few agriculture products um, that that the country needed. Um, so all these sectors are very important, and it depends on on on, on that um, on your specific situation. Um, that what should be your areas of focus, but mainly public finance management. I, I really appreciate that com- comprehensive of an answer. And one question I have is looking at Afghanistan now that the Taliban has taken over, how do you think that the Taliban takeover is going to impact Afghanistan's development trajectory? And where do you see Afghanistan in the next 10 years? Oh, it has uh, impacted severely. Um, I would say, um, unfortunately, I keep um, saying this, we have we have lost um, all the development and progress of the past uh, 20 years, to be honest. Um, just just like giving a few examples, um, we had a constitution, um, we had ratified a constitution that guaranteed rights to all members of society, including women and minorities, and Afghanistan was signatory to international conventions on human and women rights. I was talking about certain international conditions. Um, so whenever Afghanistan received an aid, one of the top conditions was also adherence to human rights and women rights, which was also something that we as Afghan nation um, uh, respected and put importance in, in it. Uh, women had better access to primary health and um, um, education and higher education. Um, uh, representation of women in the parliament and development councils. So right now, all all that progress is gone. And for example, um, the um, uh, indicators, health indicators for women, it's deteriorating. Um, um, primary school is banned for girls. And um, um, today, as we talk, it's, it's close to two two hundred fifty days that women cannot, um, girls cannot go to school. Um, that's, uh, I think that's something that has never happened in any part of the world, um, at least not formally, where um, an administration has announced that women cannot or girls cannot go to school. Um, there are more and more restrictive orders on, on the movement of women. Um, so that movement will impact every development um, sector, um, say mobility, um, economic um, activities, um, the right to travel, everything. So the impact is huge. Also, with uh, when Taliban took over, um, almost all of the development agencies, um, as I said, Afghanistan was highly dependent on aid, and all that aid suddenly came to a halt. And um, all development projects um, ceased to um, perform. Um, People did not get their salaries. Um, development projects um, stopped delivering in in, um, in all areas in Afghanistan until very few weeks and months later on, where the humanitarian assistance started. But even humanitarian assistance, despite uh, pledges that has been made, two point two billion dollars. Just imagine where a country had eleven billion dollars of expenditure each year and suddenly you're just confined to 2.2 2 
billion dollars. And that's a huge shock in terms of development. And um, I don't I don't think and um, I, I'm sure humanitarian response is not the answer going forward. But um, it's also a dilemma between recognizing um, a regime that uh, perpetuates violence against human rights and um, and an issue of economics. So you cannot fix the economy of the country without looking into um, formal structures and institutions inside the gov um, um, inside the country and uh, where an illegitimate regime has taken over. Um, it is a point of challenge as how to solve this. Um, and on your question is where I see um, uh, Afghanistan in 10 years from now. Uh, it's, um, I don't want to speculate. Um, I, I would um, wish to see a better situation, but it could also be worse if everybody um, forgets about Afghanistan. I know the international attention is... Um, um, somehow declining uh, with, with so many other crises at, this, at, at the moment. But um, once again, with, with this kind of regime who is, who's, um, who's taken the entire population in hostage, um, it's, it's very hard to, to be uh, hopeful. Um, but resistance are shaping from people um, themselves inside of Afghanistan but I hope that the international community can pay much more um, emphasis um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and the Taliban can, um, can make and can abide by those conditions of human rights, women rights, and can form a comprehensive uh, and inclusive government um, and people are out of poverty and out of the situation and dire situation that they are right now. And so looking at how the international community can support Afghanistan, it's a it's a tough balance because countries want to support Afghanistan's development, the people of Afghanistan, but they don't necessarily want to strengthen the Taliban regime. Um, and so how do you recommend that countries start to address that balance? Do you have any recommendations or insights on how economic development could be supported without necessarily supporting the Taliban, or as you mentioned, with the formal structures, would supporting Afghanistan necessarily strengthen the Taliban? Um, yes, um, it's it's a very challenging question. Actually, I even um, I keep thinking about it as um, a former uh, middle-ranking person in the management of the country. Um, it's um, even if you talk about economic um, situation, improving economic situation, it is actually helping the Taliban. But but also you have um, the entire 36 million people that are very dependent on um, on on um, on economic situation being improved. There are a few um, suggestions that everybody um, is is. At least the economists and those who are involved in the development sector in Afghanistan, uh, we've been thinking about. One is right now, this, there's an issue of, uh, there's a crisis, um, a banking crisis right now, where the central bank's um, um, authority is under question and their independence um, and how to transfer uh, money um, to the country. So one option could be to establish an independent central bank, at least to ease out the transactions problem. 
The second solution could be to still um, run some of these development projects um, under the garb of humanitarian. I know everybody is talking about humanitarian plus, which consists of few uh, specific um, development fields apart from humanitarian. Uh, that consists of education, health, and livelihood projects, um, including agriculture in rural areas of Afghanistan, um, is to um, deliver these projects outside the government system through um, maybe UN agencies or NGOs. But um, what I insist is keeping the human capital system and um, other financial and data management systems intact because these were some of the achievements um, of the past years. An entire network of professionals who worked in Afghanistan in different sectors, but also a um, few um, infrastructures and systems that were invested on. So you do not want to lose that, but again, you don't want to support it through the government um, and um, inadvertently giving legitimacy to Taliban regime. Those are all very interesting approaches. Another approach I'd like to speak with you about is that the United States recently, in February, passed an executive order with Afghanistan's central bank assets, um, arguing that to protect the central bank assets, the United States needed to, to seize those assets. And now there is a, a debate on what should be done with some of those assets. So I was wondering if you would be able to speak with us, our listeners, about what that executive order did and what you think about that executive order and what should be done with Afghanistan's central bank assets. Sure. Um, I think with that executive order, um, as, um, as some people have, um, um, have been vocal about it, um, I think the issue was not, very clear and it wasn't um, um, communicated in the best possible way. So it um, it ha has created a lot of confusions that even now we are trying to figure out, to be honest. So um, one cannot be sure at, um, what, what it, uh, it really meant at the, at the beginning. So it's split into two parts, one going to the um, families um, of, of victims of 9-11 event, that that's a um, much um, it has its its court proceedings and court issues that um, some people are are following. But um, what is important for us um, also, for example, we um, I'm I'm part of um, a group that, that keeps um, um, updating um, ourselves on on the proceedings and what would be the result, um, so that we have a, a watchful eye on what would be. Um, um, it's its final decision. Um, and the other 3.5 billion was was put for um, was reserved for um, Afghanistan's um, development. I think in its entirety, um, it's um, it's it's a hard blow, I want to say for for Afghanistan and for the people of Afghanistan because that is the backbone of your currency that's that's not supposed to be spent or dedicated in the manner that it was. Even if you say it has to be spent for um, the humanitarian assistance or um, development activity, activities in Afghanistan, that's not the purpose of the um, your reserves, actually. Um, and even by the central bank law in Afghanistan, you cannot um, spend that um, your reserves um, um, 
for, for the government budget or government expenditure. It serves uh, a specific purpose of backing up your currency and in times of need. Um, yes, in certain circumstances, the government could decide in the past uh, where to spend it, or um, but um, but right now, where there's no legitimate government, I would even um, ask that it would be kept in the way it is um, for a situation where uh, you have a legitimate government, um, and um, and and a, that government owns the reserves. Um, right now, um, it will it will have more negative repercussions than doing any good deeds to the country. Thank you very much for your thoughts on that. And as we close, I was wondering if you have any final reflections on Afghanistan, on economic development, the financial situation with Afghanistan, lessons for policymakers. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? I think my final um, statement would be none of these sectors um, can can be seen um, as in isolation so every every aspect um, is is really integrated if you talk about military if you talk about politics or economy you cannot um, try to solve one issue in the absence of another and that was um, I think a part of what went wrong during the peace process and um, Kabul collapse too. So if you see um, how, how uh, the events of August um, um, last year, it wasn't one week or two days where everything changed. It, it happened throughout the years. As I said, um, did we focus on specific and on um, proper reform since the very beginning? Did we do the right things? Did we invest on, on um, an appropriate and on uh, good enough projects? Uh, was um, um, were the military assistance um, good enough, and were they through the government system? Were the government capable of maintaining um, all the aspects of it? Um, and I think there was a lot of miscoordination between the development sector, economic sector, and political and military. I don't think many people had um, in the international community had foreseen the situation, this economic situation in Afghanistan. Uh, everybody talked about political alliances, political settlements. Um, even then, I remember few, very few agencies, um, and, and and also in the government, um, we were thinking about what would a post if if there would be a peace settlement, what would the post settlement economic order would look like. Um, but not much interest was in this um, sector, and unfortunately, this is one of the um, biggest challenges um, right now. Um, so, yes, my last comment is um, no, no sector, no field is, uh, can be discussed in isolation. Well, thank you so much for your insightful remarks and reflections today. Really appreciated hearing from you and, every, and all of your background and expertise on this topic. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you once again for inviting me. I enjoyed talking to you. Our second guest is Lena Torrijan. Lena is a social entrepreneur, international public speaker, and human rights advocate who is currently serving as Afghanistan's program coordinator at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, leading the Onward for Afghanistan Women Initiative aimed at elevating and equipping Afghan women leaders with opportunities to continue their advocacy on behalf of Afghan women and girls. 
She's also a cultural expertise advisor volunteer at Team America Relief, which is an organization dedicated to supporting Afghan refugees and other humanitarian efforts supporting the people of Afghanistan. Lena is also a former graduate of the Master of Public Policy program at the Blavatnik School of Government and is one of the school's most impressive alums. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lena. Thank you so much, Alec, for having me. And my first question is, now that the Taliban have returned, there are increasing worries about the welfare and human rights of women in Afghanistan. Would you be able to outline the current human rights situation in Afghanistan for those who are not aware of what is currently happening in the country? Yeah, thank you, Alec. I think the human rights situation, as the world is seeing, it is dire. So I'm going to go over the outline of what has happened since the takeover of the country since August. Every month, it sounds like there's the situation is getting worse and more bad news is coming out. So since the takeover in August, uh, the Taliban carried house-to-house searches looking for journalists and individuals with ties to the former republic and the Western forces. Uh, they started banning music. In September, they started uh, replacing women's ministry with ministry of virtue, uh, uh, vice and virtue. Um, they ordered shopkeepers to deface mannequins in their stores. They uh, banned uh, professional working women uh, from working and told them to stay home until further notice. They banned women from attending and teaching uh, at universities. And in November, they started taking other measures such as banning entertainment and comedy and film, um, any of that in the society. And in December, um, it was not enough that everything has happened. They started banning drivers from uh, playing music in the cars and ordered them not to take women passengers um, uh, uh, around without a hijab or without uh, mahram. And in January, they started taking even more extreme measures in uh, not allowing women and men um, to dine together or also not allowing uh, women to uh, to travel around without uh, a mahram. Um, when they attended the Oslo uh, talks, they uh, promised the reopening of schools and universities in March, which gave uh, a lot of hope for the people that uh, maybe the Taliban have changed and they are going to respect human rights and women's rights. Um, unfortunately, in February, we saw an, another extreme measure of them banning women uh, from traveling abroad without a mahram or without a legitimate uh, reason. And in March, I think the really hard uh, ache came when we saw that they had promised they would open schools in March. They actually ordered the cl- closure of all schools girls uh, starting grade seven and, uh, and up. Um, and they also banned the broadcast of all foreign TV series. And uh, m- most recently, right now in May, that we saw that they um, issued a, a decree of uh, forced hijab uh, for women to cover their faces uh, for all in society. And most recently for p- female TV presenters uh, to cover their faces as well. Um, and also, as um, we have seen, they've also ordered women not to transport alone and to have licenses. So I think uh, this is just an outline about by month and month, the decree seems to be getting stricter and stricter and the human rights situation gets dire in the country. Well, thank you for sharing all that. It's a very worrisome uh, change and a lot of uh, very concerning developments 
in the face of all these developments, how do you think the international community should respond at a country level and even um, an individual level to support women and girls in Afghanistan and help um, improve the human rights record there? I think what we see is that the Taliban has truly broken every promise that they have made to the international community, uh, whether that be in regarding respecting and protecting women's rights or Afghan people's rights or creating an economy uh, that people can thrive in. So I think the international community needs to continue uh, to work with the human rights, uh, uh, Afghan human rights defenders, to the, the civil society, with the Afghan women leaders, uh, to ensure that there's some sort of measure and requirement to protect human rights uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and I think truly, uh, right now, what we see is the international community issues statements and stands with the Afghan people. But I think there needs to be certain really action taken, concrete action taken in holding them uh, accountable. Uh, and really, um, part of the leverage that I think I see is that Taliban are, are seeking recognition, seeking legitimacy, um, and uh, want to get credit for um, this hopes that I think they truly believe that they are creating an Afghanistan that is better, uh, which is extremely questionable given the human rights situation in the country. So I think there's a leverage for the international community to really step in and ask for concrete uh, actions that would hold the Taliban uh, accountable. And do you have any examples of countries that are making a positive difference, that are using sources of leverage to try to improve the situation? Are there, are there any good examples that we can point to currently? Unfortunately, at this moment, I can't say yes to the question, but I do really see an opportunity uh, for Muslim countries and regional countries to step in. Uh, countries like Qatar has hosted Taliban peace delegates and had, has provided a platform for them to have two conversations, uh, including the peace talks that happened in the past. So I think right now, such countries, um, given that the Taliban are using uh, the role and the framework of Islam to push uh, an agenda that I think Muslim and regional countries do have an opportunity to step in and hold them accountable. Well, thank you very much. And I'd like to now shift to refugees and how we can support Afghan refugees who are trying to flee the country. Um, we saw a lot of news coverage with, in the aftermath of the U.S. military withdrawal, a lot of concerns about refugees and obstacles that they faced in trying to leave the country and get out. And so I was wondering if you'd be able to reflect on what you thought were some of the major factors that made the evacuation of refugees in Afghanistan more difficult and how could the evacuation have been improved? I think the number one um, factor that kind of led to this creating a sense of panic was the the, the thought process that went into uh, withdrawal from the country. So I, I really would say that many people think that it was not a responsible withdrawal from the country and the way that it was done and more had, could have been done from between the different parties uh, that were in the country at that time. Um, so I think that in itself created a sense of panic. I think seeing the leadership of the country leave starting in August 15 and even for some earlier, that really led to low morale, whether that be for the military or for the people of the country. Um, and I think the other major factor was the threat of ISS attacks in the country as well. Uh, so I think all of this led to this sense of panic that people wanted uh, a way out, a way to freedom, 
while facing really a, a regime that was going after um, some people because of, of their ties to the former government or the U.S. You know, military or something. So I think those really create the sense of um, panic, but also uh, at the time of withdrawal, there was limitation of resources. There was really no uh, organized steps or plans of uh, how do you, would you get on flights? Who would get in? Do you have the correct paperwork? Um, and it didn't help that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Afghans trying to um, seek freedom and ended up being outside the airport and over 160 ending up losing their lives. So I think overall, just a major disaster in many, many different ways. And so moving on from that disaster, how can the international community do a better job moving forward in supporting refugees? And what can they do in order to um, help them enter new countries or meet the kind of needs that they currently have? Yeah, I think there are many countries that have uh, taken Afghan refugees. Uh, I think currently with the current refugee crisis um, in the world, in addition to what's gone to Afghanistan, has really shown the different treatment of refugees. Uh, so I would hope uh, and ask the international community of uh, humanizing all refugees and treating them uh, truly with the human dignity that they deserve um, and not look uh, upon <laughs> color and status and all other factors that may uh, benefit some and hurt other refugees. So with Afghan refugees, I think there's a lot of organizations that have come together to uh, host families, to welcome them, to resettle them, and to really give them a sense of uh, home in these their new uh, countries. Um, so I think one major part that still needs a lot of help is resettlement, this ongoing process that's not going to be ended in months. Um, and then the other part is what happens to the future of the refugees who've come to the uh, U.S. or other countries on parole? Uh, like speaking specifically of the U.S., uh, the parole for most of these uh, people that have come from Afghanistan are for two years. So within these two years, either they have to apply for asylum or find another way to have really a future in the country. So I think one way that the U.S. can really step in is uh, hopefully by passing the Afghan Adjustment Act that would allow them uh, a direct pathway to residency. Uh, otherwise, this uncertainty of what happens to them in the future, if they have to return to Afghanistan or another country, which is not an option, uh, is, is really uh, heartbreaking. And do you know when this Afghan Adjustment Act comes up for a vote or what its prospects looks like in the U.S. Congress? Do you see obstacles with that? Um, how, how is kind of the status of that current legislation playing out? I, I, ho I hope and I think it is for the most part a bipartisan issue that is getting support from both sides. Um, but will it go for a vote anytime soon? I don't think so. But I'm, I'm hopeful that with continuous reaching out to the U.S. representatives that people would truly uh, make a change and would be able to pass this act. But as of right now, it is still in the very much in the discussion phase uh, with a lot of refugees advocating for themselves and a lot of uh, communities supporting the Afghan refugees as well um, for this act to be passed. Thank you. That's a very helpful answer. And as we start to close out the interview, do you have any other insights, lessons, 
personal reflections on the situation in Afghanistan that you'd be able to speak out or anything you wish to leave our listeners with as we end the episode? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Alec, for, um, and the Blavatnik School of Government for giving this platform to refocus and to remind the world of the uh, what's going on in Afghanistan and the human rights situation. Um, I, I think the one last thing that I would like to leave with is that um, very, very, very soon in the couple of weeks, the <laughs> extension of the freedom of travel for the Taliban are going to come up in the Security Council for a renewal vote. Uh, I think this is very much an opportunity uh, for the Security Council and the member states and the uh, friends and allies of Afghanistan to really step up and hold uh, Taliban accountable um, for what is going on in the country and really put concrete measures that would ensure the protection of human rights and Afghan people's rights in the country. Um, so I really do hope to see that. And uh, again, thank you for this opportunity. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today and highlighting this very important issue and also returning to continue to interact with Blavatnik School. We are so glad to, to have you back and um, be speaking with us here today. So thank you again for taking the time. Thank you, Alec. That is all for today's episode, and thank you for taking the time to join us today, and with special thanks to our guests, Nahid Sarabi and Lena Torijan. We hope you have now had a greater appreciation of the background on the current situation in Afghanistan and was able to take away something from today's episode. This episode was created by students at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government and is hosted by Alec Graven. The episode was supported by Libby Beha and Fatima Murchal. Our executive producers are Libby Beha and Reed Lesk. Thank you for listening, and please stay tuned for future policy episodes. 